Greetings, race community. I am coming in live from Key West, Florida, as my family and I continue our RV homeschooling, road schooling adventure. This was a big goal of ours. Uh, it has been great to arrive at Key West, and I really don't want to think about leaving. In the meantime, the show must go on, and I'm really excited to welcome Jim Langley, president at Langley Innovations, and truly one of the most uh, authentic, helpful thought leaders uh, in the fundraising space. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you do as well, Brent. Well, we are going to get to um, your your perspective on uh, the state of affairs in the fundraising world. Uh, I think um, our, our views on the opportunities going forward as we sit here in March of uh, twenty uh, of twenty twenty one. But I just want to start quickly to frame uh, your background for those who might not be familiar. And I'd like to actually rewind back to talk about the guy at Purcell High School in Cincinnati. Uh, who is making his own decision of where to go to college. Uh, and I want to know a little bit about what led you to the University of Cincinnati. Yeah, so it was a bit of a journey from Purcell High School in Cincinnati to the University of Cincinnati and included two years of moving furniture because I didn't have the financial wherewithal uh, to go to college and then a stint in the Army. So I uh, came to the University of Cincinnati on the GI Bill I'd been in Germany for two years, and quite honestly, I thought, I want to go back home. And so the idea of going away to school didn't appeal to me, and I was married at the age of 20, so I was just a different breed of cat. Of course, University of Cincinnati is Bearcat, so a different breed of cat right from the get-go. I was a more mature student, and Brent, I was a far more serious student as a result of having that practical experience than I would have been if I went to school right out of Purcell. Wow, and and you uh, uh, ended up doing both uh, an English uh, degree, which stands out uh, as you still put it to work in your LinkedIn content to this day, uh, but also uh, spent some time in history and um, my understanding is did a bunch of writing while on campus. I did, thank you, yes. I. Um... I started off on the English literature side, uh, and then in graduate school, I became interested in, in the historical context of the literature I had been studying. I always want to know what's real, what's true. So um, the literature was wonderful, but I needed that practical application as well. And while I was an undergraduate, I started writing uh, and did all kinds of writing, including uh, journalism, uh, magazine writing, uh, fiction, poetry, won a few awards, even tried my hand at screenplay writing. Okay. Uh, what was the title of your favorite screenplay that you attempted to write? Well, what I tried to do was to write a screen or teleplays, I should say. So I, was, uh, I went to um, Hollywood and hoped that I could sell some teleplays, very crowded market, very tough to break into, particularly as a young married man. But I wrote uh, prospective teleplays for MASH and for Barney Miller and for The White Shadow, if you'll remember those shows. Well, I can say that MASH was one of uh, Gary Grinna's favorites. And so the a number of times that I watched MASH with my dad, I, I, can't, I can't say that when I was seven, it totally struck me as, <laughs> as being the, the, my favorite show, but I, it's come to grow on me for sure. <laughs> I suspect your dad was closer in age to me, so that might have had something to do something with Something like that. Um, <laughs> well, look, it's, I mean, it is going to be fun to talk about your journey with writing because, uh, you know, having done it in the late 70s uh, so extensively and continuing to do it, um, 
as technology has changed, uh, it seems like you've continued to exercise those skills and adapt them to new mediums, which frankly uh, is what um, this entire sector has had to do and needs to continue to do. Um, and frankly, we wouldn't have connected uh, for today's podcast if it weren't for an exchange on LinkedIn. So uh, it used to be teleplays and uh, magazines, and now it's uh, digital media, um, but it's been really neat to to get to know you uh, in that way. So uh, coming out of college, uh, did you have uh, direction? Obviously, you had a, you know, a family being married. I mean, a different, uh, you know, it wasn't sort of probably the, the um, carefree early 20s that maybe some people picture right out of college. But um, what was your journey um, uh, into ultimately academia? Yes. Yeah, so the ultimately into academia was through writing and journalism in particular. So I was doing freelance writing, but worried about supporting a family and we had a child on the way. So I was determined to find a way to support my family. And it didn't seem that would be quite viable with um, freelance writing, no matter how successful you are. It's just a, just a tough business and it's uneven, right? So I applied for a job at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and I didn't fit any of the qualifications, maybe 10 or 15% of the qualifications. But what happened was I, they asked for writing samples and I sent a writing sample about a Miami graduate, a woman who had uh, suffered a terrible trauma. She had been assaulted by a fellow who was working on a roof nearly killed her, uh, but she became an inspirational story. She was blind and went back to her work in pottery and it was a very inspirational story. So I told her story. I went to go see her. I listened to her. I told her story. So when they're looking at these feeble credentials, they're not so impressed. But when they open up the writing samples, they recognize the story and they remembered being moved by the story. So I get the interview. And it was that human connection, right? That ability to tell a story that opened up that door for me. And, and there was no looking back once I got my foot in the door at Miami University. I literally was, and this is me saying this out of gratitude, not pride. I was on a rocket. I went from being a staff writer to a vice president at Georgia Tech in about eight and a half years. So I was on a rocket, but it was all that pre-work that you right. and I are talking about writing, thinking, clarity of thought, caring, caring about the human condition. And then under the right circumstances, I was able to, to prosper as a result of that. And of course, thanks to wonderful people who saw things in me, took chances on me, mentored me, all those things have to come together. I love it, Jim. And it's, it's just such a timeless example, because I think even now when you you know, when we interview people or, um, you know, as I mentor young people, um, it's just never been easier to have a voice, to develop a voice, to share a point of view, pick your platform. It could be LinkedIn. It could be Instagram. It could be TikTok. It doesn't really matter. You know, it could be uh, magazine submissions um, to this day. And uh, if you have a point of view, if you want to learn about something, if you're genuinely curious, write about it you know, or maybe now it's create a podcast or do some YouTube content about it. You've done all of those things. Um, and it's just such a simple way, A, to learn, uh, but B, to stand out. And when you essentially have that recurring body of work, um, if you, uh, you know, are a prospect researcher, write about it. If you're a major gift officer, write about it. It doesn't really matter if anybody reads it. Um, 
it's just the sake of doing it and, and developing your voice is going to help you stand out. That's such good advice. And so but it's well scary, said. but it's yeah. kind of scary. I mean, sure you, you, know, you obviously you, you did it, you studied it, you were good at it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think sometimes it's like, it's your first LinkedIn post that is the scariest, right? It's the first article you yeah. submit that is the scariest, but once you do it, like anything, you can really build momentum. It's so true. And uh, I have to tell you, every time I send out a LinkedIn post and I have developed a following and some of them have been extraordinary in terms of worldwide uh, following. But every time I send out a LinkedIn post, my heart's in my throat a little bit. I wonder if I've done my best, if it's going to uh, matter, if anyone will notice it. But then people start to watch you after a while. They start to follow you. And as you alluded to, Brent, there are so many. What impresses me is how many curious professionals and practitioners are out there looking for content, looking yeah. for authenticity, maybe even looking for kindred spirits. And so it, 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 is, it does behoove you when it works. It's so rewarding on both sides. You know, you're meeting people that you have an affinity with. You're sharing knowledge. Uh, but but you do have to get to that point and you do have to produce for a while. You can't do it occasionally. Just hold yourself to some right. sort of regular discipline. I remember when I first started a blog before I got on LinkedIn, this would have been, oh, I don't know, 2005 or six. And I was just doing it, you know, on the WordPress. I put up my little shingle and started. And I didn't realize there were analytics behind the, the so I just, every once in a while, I'd get a nice note from somebody go that but it was two or three a week. And I thought, you know, after a couple of weeks or maybe, I don't know, six, seven months, am I making a difference? Should I do this? And somehow I started noodling around on the site and I saw the analytics and I saw some of the posts were getting six or 7,000 views. It was like, what? <laughs> so you can't always tell just by people who contact you who are like, right. you've got to say, wait a second, there's a lot of people taking a look at what you're writing. They won't always own up to it. They may be uh, looking at you for right. many reasons, but boy, can you gather a lot of eyes. And to your point, Brett, be authentic. Just get, you know, get into your soul and say what's bugging you, what you believe in most deeply. Don't worry about your odd self. Just let it out and you'll be surprised. That's what, that's what will cause people to notice is like, oh, I haven't heard that before or somebody's being real. Yeah. No, you're spot on. And um, I think, you know, some of the best, uh, conversations on LinkedIn or even in this medium are, are when people disagree. And I think sometimes being able to disagree professionally is, uh, is really helpful. And, and that's a good way for people to learn. And I had a similar experience. Like we've been doing this podcast for over a year. We've done about an episode a week, every single week without fail. My marketing leader, Erica, keeps me to task and, and, and make sure that we, uh, that we've got a good backlog of, of guests. Um, but we really looked at it as an opportunity to learn. I mean, I've learned a lot just from getting to interview people. Uh, we built some nice relationships coming out of it, but we didn't have aspirations for tens of thousands of people to listen to it and so forth. But now, even after just a year, I mean, I haven't been doing it as long as you have. Uh, I just had a call with uh, DePauw University last week, and, and one of the members of the leadership team said, you know, I've been listening to your podcast and I really enjoy it. And I thought, what? Like, how did you even discover it. So it's been, uh, it's been neat to see some of those, um, those, those benefits emerge. Well, first of all, I want to, I want to congratulate you because your, 
you put out content, you have a point of view and you document it. It's not like you speculate, you make a rational argument, but when questions are challenged, you're remarkably non-defensive and you invite other points of view in. And so I really respect and admire your ability to do that. There's no reason any of us should get our back to the wall unless somebody's being you know, biting all. or personal that yeah. we do our best, we frame our thesis to the best of our ability, we put it out, and I look at it like testing of material. So I yes. use LinkedIn to say, this is what I'm seeing with my clients, let me see if it resonates with a larger group. So I keep, you never stop learning, and that's the beauty of it, is you've got this test market on any right. of the social media. I like LinkedIn, I seem to, it seems to work for me, but you've got a test market, and as you're suggesting, it is the best form of advertising is to put out content, then people start to seek you out as opposed to pure promotion, right? Right. I, I, I bury a little promotion in there. I tell people about my book in the last line. But what I really try to do is to say, I have to offer something of value or try to, and then people will seek value in me. So it's proven to be great business development, not by naked promotion, but by Bingo. sharing knowledge, Bingo. trying to help others. Yeah. And look, you clearly genuinely enjoy it. We genuinely enjoy it. And I think there's an element like that really helps. So uh, whatever it is that you, the listeners genuinely enjoy, don't, don't fake interest in something and feel like you need to start putting content out about it. Pick something you genuinely love. Let me just get back to your career. And then I want to dive into, um, to a couple of, uh, of topics that we had, had discussed a bit. Sure. You know, I, I see commonly there are a couple of different paths. One is uh, somebody who starts at their alma mater and just works their way up, right? The 20 year, 30 year, one institution. Uh, and and that, that happens. You know, there's another scenario, um, which I think you represent is a little bit more, and, and you've already referenced uh, your time in the military, but oftentimes it can look a little bit like a military family moving base to base. Yeah. Uh, in order to progress or um, get new opportunities. And you've really been all over the country. You've heard different accents. You've uh, experienced different subcultures. Um, just tell me a little bit about that path. And just for the audience, uh, Jim started at UMass, uh, uh, made his way to Georgia Tech, U uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, and then ultimately had a great run at Georgetown, um, but really got to see a variety of institutions, a variety of geographies, um, that's not easy as you're raising a family, making, you know, making all those moves. But just tell me about um, that journey. Yeah, no. Uh, so it's interesting you cited the military. And of course, before that, raised by a father who worked for General Electric and was transferred a few times. So I suspect that predisposes us to have that kind of experience to have moved as children is less terrifying. And to know that I didn't always enjoy it as a child when we uprooted, but when I was in my 30s and 40s, thought I was the better for it. That was my perspective. I don't mean to diminish people who make different choices, but that I, by being by moving as a child, was very adaptive. I could come into different cultures and different environments. So imagine going from the Midwest to to New England. There is a cultural adjustment that has I to be made. I grew up in uh, grew up in Iowa and went to Brown, so I feel that oh. for sure. 
Yeah. yeah so, you know, Mid Midwesterners are kind of indirect and tiptoe around things and New Englanders can come right at you and, and are kind of mystified if you're indirect like you are sometimes in the Midwest, not trying to hurt people's feelings. And then imagine going to the deep south from, from New England, right? And then out to California. So I actually did look for new challenges and I should give my wife and my children tremendous credit for being adventurous enough uh, to want to go along. We always talked about it as a family. It wasn't a, a, just my decision, but they were adventurous enough to do it. We tried to do it at certain moments in their childhood, uh, right? Once they get in high school, leave them alone. Don't, don't uproot them at that point. That was, so we had a plan, but it took a spirit of adventurousness and a feeling that, you know, I wanted and we wanted to continue to grow and learn. I have to say the irony of course today is that I have two girls in California who've been there for a long, long time. They weren't keen on going to California from Atlanta, Georgia, but you couldn't blow them out of there now with dynamite. They are just the quintessential Californians. It's their home, it's their place, it's their world. So you don't know, and I guess we were adventurous. Uh, we wanted to grow and part of growing was to grow culturally. Uh, by, by experiencing different kinds of people in different kinds of settings, different norms. And in the process, it also was enormously helpful to me to understand regional differences between giving and the constants of giving. When you what are the regional around, differences? Oh, so, you know, they can often be tied to, to uh, for, for instance, in the Deep South, it was particularly true when I went there in, what, 1988, the, the power of the extended family in the deep south. So you get to know one person and they think highly of you or they think highly of the organization, they can open doors in the extended family. So the, 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 you're, it's like this massive organism that you tap into. And in the deep south, if you get embraced by the extended family, you know, you'll, you'll be invited on vacation. You'll be invited to the summer home. You, 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 when you come and make a solicitation, you might be making it to two or three generations uh, yeah. because this is how we do things. We do things together. We do things by example, but because we're all here together. So, you know, I was able to see wonderful things. Um, I, when, I, when I took my first vice presidency at Georgia Tech, I was 37 I looked like I was 22. I know that because when I went to my first event, I was standing in a buffet line and a woman said, what's your major, right? So I look so young, but then I go to the deep South and there's this deferential uh, approach, particularly at Georgia Tech, because it was, you know, it has a very military kind of cast to it. it. ROTC was required all the way up to 1961. So when it, this, this boyish man goes out to speak to alumni and they stand when I walk in the room, they're so deferential to the title. And you know, my instinct is to go, you know, it's just me, relax. But then you realize that's culture, that that's respect for title. So I didn't, wow. I was clear in my own mind not to confuse myself with the title I carried, but to do honor to the title and do honor to the culture. So. It's, it's just different things in different places. And in New England, you better be prepared to stand up to real challenge, direct challenge, stated unexplicitly very often by donors. Um, and you know, if you get your back to the wall, it's not gonna serve you well. So you just so, learn these different adjustments. So, so you've had all of these, I mean, I love, we have not really talked about the regional 
philanthropic cultures, the family unit. I mean, I, it, it's again, this is why we love this podcast because it's it's just a great chance uh, to learn. I do have to ask though, when you think about the most memorable donor experiences, the most memorable interactions, it could be bad, it could be direct, it could be amazingly positive. But when you think about the time at UMass, at Georgia Tech, at UC San Diego, at Georgetown, who, what are some of the moments that you just really remember as being um, um, standing out for one reason or another? Well, my most embarrassing uh, Oh, yeah, here we go. We need most embarrassing, embarrassing was as yeah. a young vice president at Georgia Tech, my first experience. <clears throat> and we're working on a sustainability initiative. There's a gentleman who was the champion for it. He served on our corporate advisory board. He was in the textile business and became a real believer about sustainability. All the elements added up. I invited him out to lunch. I reviewed where we were. I reviewed the state of the initiative. And I said, you have provided the leadership from day one to this moment. And we'd like to call, I'd like to call on that leadership one more time and ask you to provide a leadership gift of $1 million. He was uh, lifting a glass of iced tea to his lips. And when I said $1 million, he went and put the tea down and sort of cleared his mouth. And then he started giggling like it was the most absurd notion that he had ever heard. And then it, it kind of went into a kind of a delirious tee hee hee as if the more he thought about it, the more absurd it became. So uh, all I could remember was that my face was burning, that, that I was just so deeply embarrassed, like an accident. I can't even remember what happened after that, how I got out of the room. I just remember feeling this sense of terrible shame and terrible failure. And so for maybe the next year to, well, no, it was about 14 months, I avoided it. If he was at a campus event, I was on the other side of the room. If he moved, I was always on the other side of the room. I, I thought I had done everything right. I couldn't understand why. And, and being a young practitioner, I, what I should have done was sort of say, what could I have learned from this? Is to come back to him and say, okay, clearly that didn't work. What could I have learned? But, but, but I, I was sensitive, right? And so I avoided him. And about 14 months later, he walks into my office unannounced, sits in front of my desk and says, I think I can do the million dollars. So what I learned from it was he had never given more than $50,000. I tried to jump him up 20 times. So valuable lesson for everybody listening is the best indication of what somebody will give in the future is what they've given in the past. They may have great long-term potential, but you can only stretch people so far. Now they may put out a number that stretches themselves, but you can't. So people say they use rating systems. And I go, but you better look at the previous level of giving and understand that's a psychological plateau for people. So you see inadvertently, I, being inexperienced, I jumped him up or attempted to jump him up 20 times his previous giving rate. And it took him 14 months to come to that. But Great is there an argument? Lesson. But is there an argument that that was actually the right thing to do? If, but, but absolutely, that's part of the, the part of the story is, was it the right thing to do if you're prepared to wait? You see, everything else was right. He was the leader of the initiative. Everything that I had 
put together as the reason for asking him was right, except the amount. So you can say that absolutely, but you see for those um, people who are kind of flogging people to close gifts, it doesn't always work that way. So you right. plant seeds. And that's the thing we forget is I planted a seed and there was legitimately fertile philanthropic ground there, but it took 14 months to get in his mind that this was right, justified and doable. And also 14 months without ongoing nurturing. I mean, he was self-nurturing, right? You were uh, running away to the other side of the room for <laughs> totally valid reasons. Um, but, but you wonder, you know, if, if maybe, um, you know, you had been able to, uh, to face him and, 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 and re-engage him sooner, maybe it would have been six months to get there. Or maybe it would have been nine months to get there. Who, who knows? Right. But right. it's, uh, it's a great lesson. And thank you for sharing. Uh, because those are not the moments that uh, win case awards. And so it's really good <laughs> when we can uh, have some of the advancement follies uh, shared as well. Yeah. So if you want a rewarding one, I'd be happy to yeah, share. Yeah, let's them. go. There's so many. Let's go. There's yes. so many. But what I try to do is not share stories about my prowess, but, you know, wonderful moments in, yeah. in seeing the best of human nature. So um, there was a, a major facility to be named for a very prominent person in the town of the university. Uh, you know, where I was at the time, I want to be careful here because this was a person yep. who wanted to remain anonymous and will. And so a very prominent person who had a great political career and a business career. And um, so everyone said, well, the fundraising will be relatively easy because he was so honored. But the lead gift, you know, this is all done behind the scenes, came from a person. And I want to tell you quickly his story and let's just call him Chuck, that's a made up name, but, but the donor who gave $30 million anonymously to honor another person, and I'm, I'm changing the number to today's terms to make it even more untrackable. Uh, the person who gave it went to this school uh, from a rural background, he was dirt poor. When he came to school, it would have probably been in the 40s, and he had a single pair of clothes. He had to wash his clothes out every night. He was that poor, and, uh, but he was natively good at math. That's how he got into the school. He was natively good at math, um, but so he has no trouble academically, but he feels out of place. He's got an unusual accent and he starts to isolate socially. And so he's actually at a point where notwithstanding his native abilities, he's thinking about dropping out of a very good school. And he gets befriended by a student who's two years older than him, who is socially adept and somehow senses that this, you know, young, capable freshman is isolating. He befriends him. He goes to the dean of students and says, this man has no money to buy food. He has no money for clothes. So the dean of students then alerted, gives this young man some discretionary money to, to address those issues. And he becomes more and more, you know, capable, socially capable. He's always introverted and always shy, but comfortable enough and befriended by this remarkable, you know, campus leader to feel at home, to graduate and ultimately to prosper and to build a huge business network. That's the lead donor. So when he's asked and the person who befriends him is then the person who goes on to be the famous business leader and political leader. And so everybody assumes when an anonymous gift of that magnitude is given, it was to honor a career, but it was to honor someone 
who befriended him at a critical moment when he was 18 years of age and very awkward. And in this case, it was a joint solicitation done with a lead volunteer and this donor, this you know, shy, awkward young man, now toward the end of his career, having sold a huge portion of his business, simply when he heard the name said, how much do you want? When the number 30 million was put out, he, he said, I will do that. That was the whole solicitation. And why I share that with people is, you see, I could take credit for it. I could say I raised $30 million. But what we miss is the real story of philanthropy, of gratitude paid back late in life, that it is the sowing of good deeds by humans and by institutions that ultimately produces these kinds of remarkable commitments. A great story, uh, Jim. It really is. And uh, thank you for sharing. And I think it's an interesting lead in to one of your recent posts on LinkedIn that I want to cover. And I think uh, everybody listening, Jim Langley, look him up on LinkedIn, Langley Innovations, hit the follow button uh, or shoot him the connection note, say that you met him on the, the Raise podcast. But um, Jim, you know, periodically uh, shares content that, uh, you know, is rooted in his experience. And, um, uh, you know, and fosters great, great uh, conversations among people from all over the country, all over the world. And he recently, a couple of weeks ago, posted something uh, that he framed as weak versus strong fundraising posture. And it got a lot of traction, over 600 reactions on LinkedIn, over 50 comments. And so, uh, and what's great about, I mean, Jim's, con it's simple, right? These are simple. Um, you, you take a lot of different uh, themes and you organize it, you distill it down, but this is not you know, fancy graphic design. It's not, you know, a lot of um, um, spin. It's just really simple, basic points. And so I thought uh, for our listeners, it would be good if we could just walk through one of those posts that really uh, uh, sort of uh, caught a bunch of attention. Um, and then hopefully they'll be able to follow you and, and maintain the conversation going forward. So just tell me a little bit about what led you to choose the idea of weak versus strong fundraising posture and then let's tick through um, some of the bullet points underneath the differences. Yeah, so I mean, uh, before we talk about fundraising, let's talk about, again, how you're raised. And I remember my mother saying, stand up straight and square your shoulders. You know, don't, don't come into an environment looking um, uncertain, you know, that people um, will be attracted to strength. And so no matter what you feel, yep. stand up straight, square your shoulders and approach life that way. And then I even worked later in my career with presidents who at the point of solicitation, I noticed started to kind of hunch and look awkward. And I remember on the drive back, you know, being very respectful, I'd say, could, could I offer some advice? And they'd say, yeah, you know, looking like we're going to be criticism. I'd say when somebody, when you are asking somebody for money, I know I'm personally shy, but I need you to look like the organization deserves it. And so <laughs> while you may feel shy, square your shoulders, mm. look confident and show people that you are prepared to put that money to good use. Well, now apply hey, that. Hey, Jim, right. can I just ask, in those Please. conversations with the president, do they make the ask or do you make the ask as the fundraising leader? I usually put, almost always put the number out, but ask them to add a personal testimonial to it. To in other words, say, this is important to me. I'd appreciate it if you could do it. But I, I can't think of any case where 
I didn't put the number on the table. So it was both. <laughs> I, I had to do, I think maybe in their estimation, the harder work, but I needed them to be, to put a, a personal expression yep. behind it. Thank and you. by the Just way, you know, yeah. anybody who raises money or, or runs for office will tell you how important it is to ask for the vote or to ask for the commitment. It is important. It's a sign of respect, right? So good question. So, you know, you have to have all those elements. So um, then when I started thinking about, you know, fundraising and helping people, I realized, you know, all too often we come at it, in my estimation, weekly. We we see young professionals sometimes acting fawning. You know, they, they humor people. They, they treat donors as if they're egotistical. So they just heap praise on them. And it makes a lot of donors feel awkward to have this kind of ingratiation going on because they're problem solvers. They, 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 don't, they don't feel the need for somebody to, and I've seen this approach of, of ingratiation. And I think, well, that's not effective fundraising. Again, mm. square your shoulders. If you represent a good cause or a good organization, forget how you feel. Now you're representing that organization. Then I started looking at content. Well, if you're just asking for money, right? And it's just sort of trust us, that's a far weaker position than to have a budget, to have yep. a proposal, because you're brokering value. You're not just asking for money in the abstract, but you're saying, here's a difference to be made. Yeah. Hey, Jim, everybody um, should, should go and look up this post, but why don't I just frame it for us and then Please. we can just go through each of them. So Please. Uh, weak fundraising, crying need, schmoozing prospects, requesting operational support, asking for gifts, soliciting nice round numbers, playing to ego, and assuming thanking is the same as stewarding. Contrasted with strong fundraising posture, which includes offering hope, developing partnerships, investing in high impact initiatives, projecting return on investment, providing carefully crafted budgets, satisfying donors' desires to make differences, and expressing gratitude and demonstrating impact. So let's just go one by one, crying need versus offering hope. Yes, so, and, and in making those simple contrasts, I'm hoping as you read them, it becomes clear to you the difference. So our organization is in need. We can't balance the budget versus here's as much as we can do with the money we have. Now imagine if we could increase that programmatic budget by 25%. You know right away, once I frame the issue, which works best, because now you start to think like the philanthropist. Yes, Love I can it. bail you out, but it's so much re more rewarding to know that I can make something happen. I can take some part of your organization program or service from good to great. You see the difference? Great. In both yep. cases, you may be limited by resources, but one, you say, I need more versus we could do even more for those we serve. Smoozing prospects versus developing partnerships. I think you were just speaking to that a bit. Yeah, so gift. We're all about gift, and we're all about getting gifts this year. You know, for the significant portion of my career, gift, gift, gift. Wait a minute. You you don't want a gift. You want a partnership. You you don't want just a, 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 a an apple from the orchard. You want a healthy tree. So the apple is the gift. The tree is the donor. We have to get more and more into the developing of partnerships to the keeping of trees year over year and they will bear fruit over and over again. So we tend to sometimes try to get a gift, close a gift, sometimes at the cost of the partnership, 
right? So, or sometimes we minimize the effect of the partnership. But if we step back and say, don't you see the difference between schmoozing and developing a partnership? Schmoozing is, won't you do for me what we want now? Versus, wait a minute, we could be working toward greater goals year after year, but let's start here. Again, I will say on the face of it, we all start to see when we think about ourselves as donor, which is more compelling. The next one is really interesting, requesting operational support versus investing in high impact initiatives. I think that our higher education partners constantly struggle with, uh, you know, the budget relieving annual fund unrestricted being what we want, but donors obviously want to give to something that is going to make more of a direct impact. Sometimes there are neat intersection points where you can both make a direct impact that relieves op operational um, pressures, but um, requesting operational support still still happens a lot, right? Like we yes. we like we make this much in tuition, we have this many in expenses, we've got a gap we need to fill. Will you help fill it? Uh, you're suggesting that's not the right way to frame it. It's not, and one reason I suggest that is because it's proving less and less successful. The data is compelling, and it shows fewer and fewer donors willing to respond to that. As a matter of fact, if you look at million dollar gifts in any given year to all of higher education, unrestricted, $1 million gifts in any year, you'll see precious few. We're talking about 12, 15, 18 from year to year in all of American higher education. Then you start to say, wait a second, if you find a concept that people believe in, find compelling difference making, they're gonna give much more and you simply tuck a cost of business equation into it, right? I'm not talking about a gift fee. I'm saying, look to the donor, here's a new initiative in data science or who's in, here's a new initiative in ethics. Here's what it's gonna to take to capitalize it. And in that you have a 5% cost of doing business and overhead. If I believe in that idea, and I've seen this over and over, I don't challenge the overhead. I know there's a cost to doing business. But you see what you could do with 5% yeah. on a million or 5 million or 10 million or 25 million to generate that kind of overhead that you need rather than saying, but we must have, it's too literal. You're just telling people about need rather than saying, help us do this. And in that, we'll figure out a way to get our basic costs covered. Yeah. That makes sense. Asking for gifts versus projecting return on investment, it sort of relates to what you just said. Different. So, so you know, our research and other research shows something very similar about difference making, about impact, that the tide is turning, that as more people, donors come from entrepreneurial backgrounds, they think about ROI and they think not about giving to institutions, but through them to generate certain kinds of societal ROIs. So you have to come to them with not the gift request, but the proposal that says with a million dollars, we can expand this program qualitatively or quantitatively. And here are the projected impacts from the amount we're requesting. Now that's not everybody, Brent. So sometimes when I do feasibility studies, I see the traditionalists, the institutional investors, and I then see the targeted investors. So I never want to say, well, you know, some of the baby boomers and older generations still tend to be loyal. So give them opportunities to support the institution, but don't be a one trick pony when you're coming to somebody who's run a business, who's got an entrepreneurial background, who isn't the kind of consistent loyal donor, you're going to have to switch over into these new modalities. 
I really am excited to get your take on the next one. Soliciting nice round numbers versus providing carefully crafted budgets. Yeah. Same idea. Now you're, you're looking at a discerning investor. He or she has, has, has built maybe one or more companies. Um, they have a philanthropic orientation, but you come at a nice round number. By the way, this includes square footage right num round numbers where I've heard people say, how did you come to that? And how can you show that that square footage will make a difference enough to justify the number you're asking? You see, you're, you're dealing with really competent, capable people who ask constructive questions. But now imagine the difference between saying, oh, we got this kind of initiative that sounds like fun and all you've done is use verbiage to describe it. Well, sounds interesting. What do you think you need? A million dollars versus let me put together a first draft of our business plan and you can see what we think to capitalize the first phase of it will be 867,000. You see, you've made a much different impression about pre-work, about effort you've put into the concept, about forethought. And one suggests you've given the initiative far more serious thought and are far in a far better position to put that money to work than with a kind of a gauzily yeah. described initiative with a nice round budget. You've made an yeah. impression that you've done some homework. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate um, John Morris's comments on this. John uh, was uh, leading development at Kansas State, just took over as uh, the SVP of advancement at Auburn University. And uh, John often talks about, you know, solving problems, right? What is the cost to solve a problem? And yes. I think what you're describing certainly can be applied to, to the major yeah. gift uh, side of things, but I think we're seeing some neat um, uh, twists uh, at universities like K-State, even in a crowdfunding um, context. Uh, I know you've talked about the difference between crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. They've done a little bit of both. Um, for example, last year, uh, they did a, a big campaign. Uh, it may have been two years ago, but it was essentially in, uh, in their giving day rooted fully around their food pantry. And the idea was that in one day, we can solve the hunger problem among our students on campus, not give to one of a hundred different initiatives, give to this initiative and solve one problem. They're now looking at uh, this year on March 24th, they're doing a textbook uh, 2.0, which basically can um, create high quality digital alternatives to traditional print textbooks for the entire community. One problem, one day, a few hundred thousand dollars can solve a specific problem. And I think that's some of what you're describing maybe applied at the major gift level as well. Yes, and, and at every level. So I love that example. I think it's exemplary. I think it's where the field must go to, to command more respect, more resources and to sustain loyalty. And even at the annual um, giving level or the giving day level. So that's just a, that's a spectacular example. I hope everyone hears it and studies it. And every time I'm asked about annual giving, I say, you know, what's the future of it is it must be about annual difference making. You see, if you mm. just keep trying to fill these buckets and reach these goals, these donors are saying, but, 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 but what difference did I make? So what, that's a wonderful example of, of taking an initiative around food insufficiency and saying to the modest donor, Look at the, the shelves you can fill with food. Look at the students that you can help through these tough patches, right? It's got all the hallmarks of a great philanthropic case, but it allows the modest investor 
to feel a part of making a significant, sustainable, measurable impact. It's fabulous. All right, Jim, I got to ask, though, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm feeling a little bit guilty because <laughs> right before we got on this, uh, this recording, uh, I am on the board of the Brown University Football Association. I was a first generation college student there. Absolutely life changed by philanthropy. It's why I, I'm doing what I'm doing here at Evertrue. Um, and so I help with the fundraising, right? The annual giving work. And I think it's a good way for me to, you know, I haven't been a professional fundraiser, but at least keeps me in the game a little bit. And I sent out a couple of notes to a couple of my teammates soliciting their annual gift right before this call. I actually made them videos because I thought I'd try to be a little extra personalized. And I lobbed out the roundest round numbers. Hey, you know, Darren, could I count on you to do something like 250 this year? Totally arbitrary, Jim. I, I was rooting it a little bit in what they've done in the past. Definitely didn't have a stretch goal. For sure didn't connect it to any difference making. So what advice do you have for people like me that are trying to do good work as volunteers um, but we're definitely soliciting nice round numbers. I probably uh, played to ego a little bit. I mean, I might've done all of these things wrong. Uh, so what do I do different next time? Well, I try not to pick on uh, former football players who are younger than me, but, uh, but that being said, you know, we don't want to miss a learning moment. So first of all, I admire your, your service to your alma mater and, and to something that you have a personal passion for. If, if Brown football has done a good job, maybe you've built a kind of a club or a congregation where the benefits are so obvious, where people feel so good about that experience. Someone like you can come in and just go, hey, let's keep it going, right? But, but Brent, if, if that isn't the case, if, if there aren't those donors already in place feeling good about that experience, then I'll raise the question about what could you have done not just to get to that nice round number this year, but to build community around Brown football and community in such a way where it starts to feel really rewarding to be a part of it. So I liken it to the church, where if I'm in church and I admire the minister, if my heart is lifted, if my spirit is lifted, when the basket comes, I give because I'm a part of it. What we're missing so often in higher education is this 30-year decline in alumni participation is the lament of the donor stated over and over again, my alma mater does little to reach out to me besides asking for money. Right. So I'm glad Brown is taking advantage of you and to support Brown football, but I would challenge them and maybe they're already doing it. It's a fine, fine place is, but for the rest of the year, what are you doing to build a palpable totally. sense of community? Right. Well, and, and this is where I think, you know, look, we've got a new, a new, relatively new head coach who who graduated just before I got there. Um, he's done a great job building a community on Instagram, like giving us a real window into workouts, having a sense of what it's like to be a student athlete who's now missed you know seasons because of the pandemic and has had to deal with all of the the um, emotional and physical challenges as a result. Um, and so there is this you know obviously strong affinity uh, uh, just for most people having been in the program and now an opportunity through digital media to stay in touch, even if we're not, uh, you know, talking to each other every day. And so I think that go. helps create a warmer population, but it doesn't change the fact that I still chose pretty round arbitrary numbers. And part of what I wonder is, is could I reframe it next time or for my next asks, even around options? So I'd love to get your take on this. You know, I could, could say something like, Hey, there's a few different options I'd love for you to consider at the, $2,000 level, which I know is more than you've done in the past, and it might be a stretch. Here's what we can help coach achieve with that level. 
On the other hand, we've got a $750 opportunity. Um, or if you're feeling like um, you, you know you, you need to participate at a more modest level for 250, here's what, now it's a little hard to talk about the difference we can make or what we can achieve with $250 versus $2,000, because let's be honest, yeah. we're probably gonna win or lose the same amount of games, whether that comes in. Now, if it comes in times a thousand people and we're able to show a uh, you know, $250 or $500 uh, uh, increase in the average gift, now that starts to really add up. But, but I guess I'd love to just get your take on you know, 100, 250, 500, 1,000, it's all kind of arbitrary. Uh, but when you take that times the number of annual donors, it really does start to add up. So how do you pick what number to ask? Well, you do come up with a budget. You know, what is it that you need the money for? And is it part equipment? Is it, you know, part upkeep? Is it part um, scholarship? Is it part, I don't know, just, you know, what, let, yep. tell, the, tell the truth. Yep. What, what, what yep. is the money? What's it about? Come yep. up with a budget. You know, people may blow past the budget if they get enthusiastic and then give people a sense of shares they can take depending on their passion and their their wealth right so you know we, we can build something and when you think about a row of bleachers it could be uh twenty five thousand dollars if you think about yeah. um you know just any way you can but give them choice and try your best to relate it to outcomes now yep people you know i, I keep saying even in athletic scholarships, give people a chance to build a scholarship. If a scholarship is $25,000, okay, great. Then say every $1,000 is one twenty-fifth of that. You know, right. Give people a chance to understand yep. what's happening in whatever increment they give. But it also plants the seed that says, oh, $25,000 is a full scholarship. Maybe someday I'll get there. The other thing you see is, for instance, is you know, we always talk about the ideal, but in fact, just about everywhere, a $5,000 current use scholarship could be a make or break determining, you know, trying to put the right financial aid package together for the right student mm -hmm. or right football player. So you say, wait a second, well, for the middle class, which is the vast majority, you know, we're doing well by the students from below the poverty line. We've got that taken care of, but middle-class kids are getting hard hit. Some, some of their families have lost their jobs during COVID-19. And we've identified an increment of 5,000 and we think right. with $100, $5,000 scholarships, we can help them over the hump. You see, I, I get what this is about. I see who I'm helping and how yep. I'm helping them. And I could give you several. I could give you $5,000 to help five kids. I could give you $500 yeah. to help a half. But now I've got context. And by the way, Brent, when you do that, you kind of lift my sights. It's like, hmm, I was thinking about 500, but I can stretch to 1,000 because now right. I know. I, I can say, right. all right, I reached yeah. to help one person. Yeah, and look, I think that's where, to your point about how are we keeping this perpetual um, relationship building going? And, and I do think that's an area where we've only begun to scratch the surface uh, with with technology. I mean, I remember as a student athlete and a, and a recipient of financial aid, getting the letter that said, look, this is your scholarship. This is the aid. It was all need-based. There's no athletic scholarships um, at Brown. And, um, and I remember seeing that donor's name um, and not even really understanding what that meant at the time. But, you know, in today's world, why can't I do a quarterly Zoom call with that donor? How do we think about you know, leveraging technology to create much more authentic stewardship experiences than, um, you know, doing the once a year scholarship dinner where we all get together and have the chicken and, you know, say hello and then never talk to each other again. So I am exactly. excited about some of those opportunities to frankly provide 
a lot of air cover for the annual fund and to help make more of those uh, those real um, connections. Now, I got to say to everybody listening, this was not a thinly veiled way to get free consulting from Jim Langley <laughs> for the Brown Football Association. So hopefully you're finding something generalizable and applicable to your work. I know that you are because this could be uh, this could be applied to anything. Let's just take through the last two points. Um, thank you for the commentary on the nice round numbers. And I will aspire to do better tomorrow for sure. <laughs> I'm sure um, you will. Uh, so the next one was playing to ego versus satisfying donors' desires to make differences. Yeah. So the naming opportunity, right? Uh, for instance, oh, you approach a donor and the first thing you say is we've got this naming opportunity. How do you think that person feels? Like, oh, and what I keep trying to explain to people, that's just one play to ego, but it's a big play to ego, is we've got this building that we could name for you for $25 million. How do you think that person feels? Because the first question they invariably ask is, but what are you going to use the 25 million for? And somebody feels as if you're sort of seeing through them or assuming they're so egotistical that that will be their primary motivation. So that's uncomfortable if you've misread somebody and mm -hmm. sort of cast them as ego-driven when they're purpose-driven. But then think about the practicality of, can you really ingratiate, can you build up an ego enough to cause somebody to, to give disproportionate to their means? You can't. Ultimately, you've got to justify the request. And the request has to resonate with a person's convictions or values, right? So never ever think ego, which plays in decision-making for all of us, trumps purpose. It never, never, never does. Let's get to purpose and difference-making. And then honorifically, we can say as a negotiation unfolds, you know, there is no one um, no one's name who we would prefer to have on the structure. Maybe that's a tool toward the mm -hmm. end, but it isn't, you know, nobody wants to feel as if they're being humored for the purposes of raising money. No one feels that way. Everyone first wants to know what difference can be made. And then if there's some recognition that I feel comfortable with, great. If my rec if recognition of me helps inspire others, great, right? So, but it's is, putting the, the ego cart before the content horse. Can I ask in your experience, what percent, I mean, you must have crossed paths with people who are highly ego driven though. And so in that case, do you still take the approach you're describing or do you sort of play the hand you're dealt? Well, here's the, well, check, check this out. Anybody who's listening, check this out. People who are most ego driven are not the most philanthropic but sometimes give ego-driven gifts. So be careful what you ask for, you may get it. You may get an ego-driven donor who then hounds you about satisfying his ego. So I'd much rather work with the innately philanthropic because mm -hmm. they give and give again and have lower ego needs. The other thing, of course, is if you get a corporate naming opportunity, it is not philanthropic. It's about how many behinds you put in the seats, how many uh, feet cross the threshold. It's paid out of their marketing budget. And again, they will monitor to see if your metrics justify that naming opportunity. And they will be jealous about whether you know, you're doing something for somebody mm -hmm. else at a value that doesn't equal what you asked of them. But, but so I'd say be extraordinarily careful when a donor leads with ego because you're gonna be living with that ego a long, long time. 
Appreciate that. Okay, last point uh, on weak versus strong fundraising posture, uh, assuming thanking is the same as stewarding as opposed to expressing gratitude and demonstrating impact. Principal concern is expressed by donors that we talk to and we talk to them regularly, right? Every week I'm doing feasibility study interviews on behalf of clients. Every week I'm talking about high net worth donors. And I always say, you know, how, how are you feeling? How did they do with the gift? And what we learned is that most of them say, this is my encapsulization, Brent, this is not the words they use. I feel more than adequately thanked, but I'd like to know more about the difference that was made, right? So what they're doing is profuse thanks, but did I make a difference? Am I continuing to make a difference? And tell me that story. See, that really sets the stage for donor satisfaction and donor receptivity. So thanking yeah. is wonderful. Don't want to undercut it, but tell me and demonstrate and let me see, feel, and touch difference made. And that's the best stewardship in the world. Not yeah, me look, saying I think, it, what donors say. Right. And I think that's where, again, there's, there's an opportunity uh, for innovation there, um, pragmatic innovation as it relates to, um, you know, not just having the thank you come from the donor relations team, you know, or working in some kind of you know, student story, but I think from a technology perspective, how do we connect the student with the donor at scale and authentically demonstrate that impact, authentically build the relationship? We hosted the folks from the University of North Dakota, um, uh, Bob Knutson and Deanna Carlson Zink, who are uh, two of the leaders uh, of that organization, COO and CEO respectively. Uh, and they shared this amazing uh, example where um, as a result of COVID, their student athlete scholarship lunch or dinner was canceled. And so instead of getting everybody together who lived within that area of Fargo, they were able to um, have their student athletes all create super creative, personalized videos, doing trick shots, doing different kind of um, uh, just, just fun videos that then were distributed to each of those donors. Um, and you know, I'd argue that's one, it's much lower cost and two, yes. more authentic. And three, you're inherently demonstrating the impact. Um, and, and that's where I just wonder is, you know, are those scholarship luncheons going to come back or do we just reinvest that money that we would have spent on the chicken and instead invest it in memorable experiences that demonstrate impact that can be delivered digitally? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Your, your supposition is absolutely right now. Um, it, the beneficiary, who do they want to hear from about the impact of their gift? The beneficiary, the person who either received the money or put the money to work, right? It makes perfect sense. So those broad thank yous are just the sort of uh, coming from advancement. They're better than nothing, but you just described the difference. The other thing, Brent, going forward is, will they come back? And we have one client who started to survey their alumni, parents, and other donors about which events in the future, once we get past COVID-19, mm -hmm. would they mm -hmm. like to keep virtual and which would they come to? You know what the dividing line was? I'll come to campuses if, if it's interactive if it's dialogic, in your language earlier, the gentleman you were citing who's now at Auburn, if it's problem solving. But if it's just information giving, I can consume that in my home with my bedroom slippers on. What I call my Zuma form, we look good on the top, we got soft pants and soft shoes on the bottom, right? So- It'll so, be charged, yes sir, yes. <laughs> so yeah, what, but, but now we're gonna see is, okay, no, I'm still interested, in, but, but I don't need to come to campus or come on site for that. Oh, but if I have a voice, if I have a chance to see, feel, touch, interact with human beings, and, and I have a role, 
So I think you're going to see smaller interactive events being yeah. the, uh, you know, the almost like the problem solving focus group is going to be the most successful way to engage constituents going forward. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you know, just case in point, I'll just bring it home with, with another Brown football example. One of my favorite events that we put on over the last decade uh, has been this career summit where we pick a day in February, we get as many alumni to come back as possible. We do breakout groups with the different um, student athletes uh, just to give them exposure to what are the industries, right? I mean, just going back to when you're 18, 19, you don't even know what these job titles mean. You don't know what uh, these different industries and career paths could be. And so uh, it's just been a great way to come together um, in, a, in a physical setting. Obviously, COVID uh, eliminated that. Uh, and, and guess what? When you're not asking people to come to Providence in February, not the most appealing <laughs> time to be there, you can really reach people um, in new ways. We can do the small breakouts, uh, create even more connections. And so I have no doubt that there's still going to be an opportunity for some really memorable um, in-person experiences. And we're all longing for them but we're gonna keep the momentum on the digital front um, forever. Uh, I hope coming out of this, I really do. Well said, absolutely, spot on. Okay, Jim, uh, this is really just a window into your world. Some of the other uh, recent posts that sparked a lot of commentary, a fundraising boss versus an advancement leader. Uh, so that one really got people going. Uh, uh, there's just a lot of good thinking uh, from Jim rooted in real experience. And you know that's one of my, uh, uh, you know, challenges just, you know, as a vendor partner in the space who hasn't been a practitioner. That's part of why I like to uh, try to stay sharp with my, with my uh, volunteer fundraising, but it's really neat to hear uh, real life stories from the uh, embarrassing moments to the rewarding <laughs> impact and everything in between. So, you know, Jim, any closing thoughts or uh, uh, if our folks want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? Oh yeah. LinkedIn is a great post. Um, and, or yeah, LinkedIn is really the best way. It's a running conversation. Join the conversation. That's how Brent and I got to know each other and kind of exchanging ideas. We weren't necessarily on the same page, but I developed a respect for his position. I learned from it. Uh, so join the conversation and maybe even think about, you know, adding your voice more and more to it. It's a great way we can learn together and we can improve the practice together. It's a great way. That's a great point, Jim. It's not even about, you know, necessarily doing your own writing or, you know, creating your own content, but you absolutely can start um, in the conversation. And, and you might be nervous to comment or disagree with me or disagree with Jim in a respectful way. That's okay. That's what makes it fun. We rarely have, you know, right uh, or wrong answers. It's more just uh, opinions rooted in our, our experiences and, um, it's been really fun to learn from you, Jim. I'm glad we were able to do this, and I hope that we can have uh, many conversations in the uh, uh, months and years to come. My, my pleasure, Brent, and I'm uh, grateful for you and wish you the very best. Keep, keep the flame going. All right. Be well. Go Bearcats. Take care. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>